Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak your word to us. That we would hear your word and it would bear fruit in our lives all to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now I will tell you honestly that I'm attempting to do something this morning that I've never actually heard anyone else do. I've done this once before, but I've never heard anyone else do it. And I would suggest that it is a a significant problem in our preaching and teaching that this discussion is essentially never addressed in the church, at least in my hearing. It's a topic about which the Bible has some very significant things to say, but I've never actually heard it talked about like this. And so we're going to look together this morning at the topic of singleness, and not just the stay sexually pure until and unless you're married singleness. That's true, the Bible teaches that, but it shows us so much more than merely that. Now, if you are married, you're going to be tempted to just tune out. And let me tell you why you shouldn't, but why you, as a married person, need to hear teachings on singleness. First of all, If people who are single have to listen to sermon after sermon about marriage, you can listen to an occasional sermon and learn from teachings on singleness. A second reason is that everyone here is single for at least a couple decades, many for much longer. It will do us good to understand something that all of us experience. A third reason is that everyone here knows people who are single, whether you are yourself or not. The fact is that almost 50% of the the adult U.S. population is unmarried. A fourth reason is, quite simply, unless you and your spouse happen to die at the same moment, one of you will be single again. And so with so much in the Bible about marriage... I think it will do us good to understand the equally important state of being single in Christ. Now, unfortunately, far too often in the church and in the wider culture, there have been some absolutely awful messages given to single people, especially Christian singles who are then also celibate, not sexually active, in obedience to Jesus, which is just unheard of in much of our culture. So, for example, U.S. Representative Barbara Lee from California states that teaching people to abstain from sex until marriage is, quote, inhumane. There are Hollywood movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin that depict the main character as an awkward, overgrown adolescent because of his virginity. One Christian writer, who I will not name, says that celibacy is, quote, an un, excuse me, an idealistic and unnatural standard, and that only those with, quote, lower sex drives are called to it. Nonsense. Or as another Christian writer puts it, if you want to be free to serve Jesus, there's no question, stay single. Marriage takes a lot of time. But if you want to become more like Jesus, I can't imagine a better thing to do than get married. Or even more bluntly, that same writer puts it, marriage is the preferred route to becoming more like Jesus. 
And I will just say, even saying that out loud hurts. But I want to name some of the false messages that people in our culture, especially those who are single, are told. Now, not only does that last part about being more like Jesus by being married completely ignore the fact that Jesus was himself an unmarried celibate man, and perhaps if you want to be like him, that might be a great way to be like him, it also ignores the fact that many of the greatest saints throughout history, some of the most Christ-like, have themselves been single and never married. Yes, marriage is supposed to make us holy, but so is remaining single. Or take, for example, a woman named Bonnie. Bonnie is a single woman, and she bought a transcript of a broadcast that a major Christian organization had produced. And after her purchase, she was asked if she would like to participate in a survey. And she thought this would be a wonderful opportunity for her to have a voice as a single woman in this large evangelical Christian organization. And she was informed that the survey would take about 20 to 30 minutes. This is an extensive survey, but she was excited to be able to participate. So she agreed, and they began. First question, marital status. Single, never married. Second question, number of children. None. She was then thanked for completing the survey and told that this major Christian organization had no more questions for her. And it became clear to her that she didn't even factor into the conversation at all because there, were no, there was no place for the insights of a single, never-married woman without children. And it is important for us as the church to acknowledge and apologize for the way that we have far too often looked down on and forgotten those who are single, and we are wrong for doing that. And any time the church has been responsible for that, I am sorry, and we need to do better. Now this morning, we're going to look together at two things that the Bible shows us about the state of being single in Christ. Now, for some, that's temporary. For others, it's a return to being single. And for others, it's lifelong. But recognizing that people are single in a variety of ways and for a variety of lengths of time, here are two things that we see in the Bible about the importance of singleness in Christ and in the church. So two things. The first is this. In Christ, singleness is prophetic it's prophetic it points us towards what's to come now i haven't asked you to open your bibles yet but now i am if you'd open your bibles to luke chapter 20 which was read today i'm going to have you bounce around uh, find two different passages but luke chapter 20 is page 880 in the red bibles in front of you luke chapter 20 read today picking up maybe at verse 27 So what happened was a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees come to Jesus and they try to trick him. And so this group did not believe in the resurrection, not just that Jesus would be raised, he hadn't been raised yet, but that the the biblical teaching that in the end, all who are faithful to the Lord, all who come to him in faith will be raised up at the last day. They rejected that. They didn't believe that. They said that the, uh, the resurrection of the dead, that we will be raised, didn't make any sense. So they didn't accept that. So they came up with this question, this trick that they thought would be a great way to prove that the resurrection at the end doesn't make any sense. So they say in verse 28, they say this to Jesus, Teacher, 
Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven were married to her. Now, I'm just saying this is a very strange custom to us, and I am certainly not advocating that we reinstate it. It had specific reasons, which we can go into another time the passage is read, but they were making this up as an absurd example of what could happen. But what I want us to see here in this is Jesus' response to their trick question. Now, beyond the main point, which is clearly there is a resurrection of the dead. That's clearly Jesus' main point. You've misunderstood there will be a resurrection. That's his main point. But in it, he says this, right in the middle, verse 35. He says, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage. But Jesus says that in the resurrection, when he returns and the dead are raised to new bodily life for eternity with Jesus, when that happens, he says there will be no more marriage. There will be no more marriage in eternity. So godly singleness now points to that future reality. See, Ephesians chapter 5 tells us that the union between husband and wife Uh, in marriage represents the union of Jesus and us, his church. But in the resurrection, in God's kingdom, we will then finally be fully united with Jesus. There will be no more need for the symbol, human marriage, when the thing it points to comes in its fullness. You don't need the photo anymore when you have the actual person in front of you. Marriage, the symbol won't be needed when we have the actual thing that the symbol points to, full spiritual union with Christ. Marriage is for a season. It's for a time. As we say in the marriage service, until death do us part. It's for a time. I'm not downplaying marriage. I'm married. But I'm simply pointing out the biblical, the explicit biblical message that it is temporary until death. There will come a time when the whole purpose of marriage will no longer be needed because it will have served its purpose. And so the thing that it points to will come so that the pointer is no longer needed. And so singleness is prophetic because it points us towards what is to come, that time when marriage will no longer be needed. And so godly singleness points to the ultimate goal where we're all heading in Christ. As one writer put it, singleness visibly heralds the coming of that new age. So marriage and biological family are actually temporary and secondary. What is primary and what is eternal is the church, is Jesus and us, his church. Marriage and biological family relations end, but the church, this relation, lasts forever, and singleness visibly heralds that future reality. There will be friendship 
in God's kingdom, but there will be no more need for what we understand as marriage because Jesus is eternal, the church is eternal, but our human marriages are not. Singleness is prophetic in that it points us to what is to come in Christ after the resurrection of the body. And so singleness is prophetic. The second is this. In Christ, singleness is esteemed. It's upheld. It's esteemed. Now, there's some in the Old Testament. That's part of why we read Genesis chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 7 to try to hold that intention. But in the Old Testament, it doesn't, isn't upheld as esteemed. But in the New Testament, we have that teaching changed. And in Christ, singleness is upheld and is esteemed. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which was also read today. It's page 956 in the Bibles in the pews. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, page 956. In Christ, singleness is esteemed. Now, did you notice in this reading in 1 Corinthians 7 that there's actually an explicit preference for singleness in this passage. Now, there's context and all that, but you see very clearly, he's actually saying that it is better to remain single. Singleness is not viewed in Scripture as, well, it's what you do if you're not married. But there's an actual preference and value given and benefits that come for Christians. So Paul writes in verse 26, he says this, I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you marry, you haven't sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And then the same is then true for married women. Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, can we just agree that undivided devotion to the Lord would be expected from all of us? Clearly, that's what we're all called to, undivided devotion to the Lord. And Paul says that is harder when you're married. The standard is undivided devotion to the Lord, and we should do absolutely everything we possibly can to attain to that. And so the Bible says, pursue undivided devotion to the Lord. Pursue that with absolutely everything you have. If you're married... Seek undivided devotion to the Lord. If you're unmarried, if you're single, remain, uh, seek undivided devotion to the Lord. You are at no disadvantage in that goal by being single. Pursue undivided devotion to the Lord. In fact, far from being seen as a disadvantage, which is often the way, as I said at the beginning, is often the way it's treated in our society today, especially in the, in the church, far from being a disadvantage, the New Testament actually upholds being single as the standard. 
Paul is actually saying in this context that the single life is preferred, not downplaying marriage at all, but recognizing the incredible inherent value of the single celibate life in the Lord and in the church. A life that the church absolutely needs. And it is to the church's detriment when all of our members are married. And when those who are single think they need to get married. I'm going to read a longer quote to you, but I think it's, you can follow it, but follow along. This is from author Laura Smith, because I think she just puts it better than I can. She says this, It does seem that singleness must be the default choice for a Christian, given the clear preference for singleness expressed in this text and in Jesus' teachings. In other words... The burden of proof is on the decision to marry, not the decision to remain single. Christians should assume that they are to be single unless and until they have a godly reason to marry. Christians should never marry out of insecurity, fear, a desire to escape a parental home, a need for affirmation, or the search for financial stability. Christians should only marry those who enhance their ability to live Christ-like lives. Those able to be true partners in Christian service. Those who give them a vision of the image of God and the glory of Christ. And so marriage is beautiful. Come next week, we're going to talk about marriage. But marriage is beautiful, and I'm not downplaying that, but hear very clearly the biblical picture where singleness becomes the default choice. And if we do marry, we need good and godly reasons to do it, not just we want to. And when we marry, it must only be to those, as Smith puts it, those who enhance our ability to live Christ-like lives. Those able to be true partners in Christian service. And that is completely different than the way most people talk about singleness and marriage, but Smith is absolutely right. At this point, that is the biblical vision of singleness and marriage because in Christ, singleness is elevated and esteemed. So, whether you are married or single, whether you are single and never married, single following divorce, single following the death of a spouse, married or single, the question for each one of us to ask is, What does a God-centered, gospel-centered life in our state look like? It's going to look different in certain ways depending on our marital status, but each of us is called to live, to borrow Laura Winner's phrase, to live as robustly and gospel-conformingly as we possibly can. Just as a note... To the congregation here, please do not ever speak to your children or your friends or church members about when you're getting married. Unless, of course, they're engaged. That's fine. Beyond the main fact that the pain that that often brings uh, to those who are single and wish to be married, it also deepens the false view that marriage is somehow right or proper or better. And so speaking especially to those who are single, whether single now and will marry later, or are single now and for a variety of reasons will not or should not 
marry or remarry. Your calling is to display the glory of Jesus. To proclaim in your life the truths of the gospel that shine more clearly through singleness than through marriage. The celibate, faithful, single life points to God's single-hearted faithfulness to us. The single life points to where all of us are heading, ultimate union with Christ. The single life reminds us that our true home is in the redefined family of the church, not just biological family. The single life reminds us that community and friendship in Christ are essential to God's mission in the world. And as a single person, you are in no way deficient for that reason. And I recognize that there are unique challenges that accompany singleness, following the death of a spouse, following a divorce, and for those who never marry. And those challenges are real and hard. We don't minimize that. We don't ignore that. But you are in no way deficient because you carry them. You are called to reflect in your singleness the reality that one day we will all be single because we will all finally, as the church, be united to Christ, not just in a marriage. You are lacking nothing in being single in Christ. You do not need marriage. Now, depending on your situation, you might marry or you might not. For a variety of biblical or personal reasons, you might realize that you should not marry or remarry. But you do not need marriage. Marriage is not the default. Singleness is an equally esteemed status. And it is one that prophetically points to the glorious calling that we all share. Union with our Lord one day. So take heart. Stand tall. Knowing that you are critical to God's plan for the world. Because in Christ, singleness is prophetic and greatly esteemed. Amen.